who you work with is really important. And there was a time in my life where I worked with somebody that didn't like me all that much. And the problem with that isn't that they didn't like me. The problem was they were my boss. And generally, if somebody's your boss and they don't like you, it's a little bit of an issue. If somebody just doesn't like you at work, well, that's life. Not everybody's going to like everybody else. But this person happened to be my boss, and he didn't like me. And so what he started to do was he started to tell me, oh, you don't need to, you don't need to come to that meeting. And then they would, he, would, he would conduct the meeting that he told me not to come to. And then they would talk about decisions that he knew I would be opposed to. And then they would settle on something. And, and that was the way he went about leading. And so it was all, in my mind, it was all very, very kind of underhanded and, and not the way you should conduct yourself. Well, I was... It wasn't ideal, but I was, able to, I was able to last. I was able to go through it, even though it wasn't my favorite place to work by far. But I was able to go through it because I had a friend. And I had a friend who was with me and, and a friend who could help me stay centered and a friend who saw what was going on and he could speak into it. And there were other people that once they, once they heard that, they were receptive to it. And then all of a sudden, my friend became distracted by life. And he was no longer able to be involved at the level that he was involved before. And then I found myself isolated. And I found myself all alone. And I found myself in a situation where people would be saying, well, this is what was decided and this is what was done. And I, I, was, I, I seemed like the only person who, who was opposed to it or who wanted to go in a different direction. And obviously, that's not a healthy place to be. And I'm so thankful that I'm, I'm not there and that, that God worked everything out. But going through that circumstance was incredibly difficult. And maybe you're there. Maybe you find yourself there at work right now. Maybe, maybe at work you're right there where there's somebody on your team that doesn't like you and they're actively trying to get other team members to not like you or to oppose you. Maybe it's a boss. Maybe you find yourself there in, in a relationship that you're in. Maybe it seems like you and your spouse are just constantly fighting and wanting to go in different directions and you feel isolated and you feel like everything is against you. If you've ever been there, you know what a lonely place it is to be. You know how difficult it is, and you know that it takes a toll on you. It takes a toll on you emotionally. It can take a toll on you physically. It's not a fun place to be when it seems like you are isolated, but if you find yourself in that circumstance and there's somebody that's there who sees what's going on and they they are beside you and they're walking through it with you, it makes it a million times better than if you have to face it all alone. But if you find yourself there and if you find yourself in that circumstance where it seems like you're facing opposition everywhere and you are unfortunately all alone, I do want to encourage you this morning that even if you find yourself there in, in a circumstance, in a situation that is not a fun place to be, that God understands what you're going through. Because on an even greater level, it is something that Jesus experienced, and that's what we're going to look at today as we continue our look at what Jesus did for us and the cost of our salvation. So if you have your phones or your tablets, I'd invite you to follow along with us in the Bible app. It's a free resource that you can download in the app store that you utilize. And once it's installed on your device, 
There are a number of great features in the Bible app, but one of the features in the Bible app is called events. And there you can either enable your locations or type in zip code 54201. Lakeside Community Church will pop up. You can follow along with us that way. If you have a traditional Bible with you this morning, we're going to continue our look at the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 26. We're going to start this morning in verse 57, Matthew 26, 57. Matthew is the very first book of the New Testament. It's a gospel. It's a recording of the life and the ministry of Jesus. We've been looking at Matthew for the past couple weeks as we saw Jesus from the, we picked up the events of, of what happened from the time Jesus left the Last Supper, the last time he shared a meal with his disciples, and it was revealed that Judas would betray Jesus, and Judas left, and then Jesus took the remaining disciples with him to a garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, and he asked them to watch and to pray, and they fell asleep, and and Jesus asked them to watch and pray again. They fell asleep. He asked them a third time. They fell asleep. He woke them up, and he said, you're not going to understand everything that's about to happen, but the plan of the Father is, is coming into place. Jesus He was willing to go to the cross, but as we saw in the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus pleaded, God, if there's another way that that we can do this, but not what I will, but your will be done. And last week we saw that the guards descended upon Jesus and the 11 remaining disciples. They arrested him. Peter pulled out a sword, and you've got to love his heart, but his aim needed a little bit of help when he cut off the guard's ear, and Jesus miraculously healed the guard. Judas was revealed as the betrayer, and he came, and he kissed Jesus, and now we pick up the events from there. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 57, we read these words. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. Now, we're going to talk a little bit of, of... certain individuals and in, in certain settings, and so I'm going to give you some background. It's, it's going to be here in, in the next couple of verses that we read. I want to give you some background of what's going on. Caiaphas is, is a religious leader. He's the high priest, but what was originally designed by God back in the Old Testament, the, the role of the high priest, it was designed by God to be a spiritual office. It had become politicized. It had become politicized. And because the office had become politicized, there were still spiritual and and religious things that happened, but that was no longer at the forefront. And really what had started to happen was it started to become much more a political operation. And they were powerful religious and political leaders, but, but make no mistake about it, they were driven more by the politics than they were the religious nature. And that's why we, we just always try here at Lakeside. When Scripture's clear about an issue, we want to be clear about an issue. And when, when it's black and white in Scripture, we're going to be black and white on it. But, but there's so many things in Scripture that are gray. And this is why we just don't want to become overly involved with, with politics because we recognize this can become a very messy space. And we recognize that Republicans love Jesus and Democrats love Jesus and Independents love Jesus and people that have never even registered to vote, they love Jesus too. And Republicans need Jesus and 
and Democrats need Jesus and independents need Jesus and people that have never registered to vote, they need Jesus too. And thank you very much for not turning that into an amen war when I mentioned the other party <laughs> that, that you're not a part of. I do really appreciate that. But this is just one of those reasons. When Scripture's clear on an issue, we're going to be clear on it, but we're not going to endorse candidates. And, and that's just not something we're going to do here because we recognize it can become very messy very quickly. And that's what happened here. That's what happened here. That, that this role was designed by God to lead people in, in their religious pursuit of God. It was to lead people in their sacrifices, to lead people in, in the spiritual disciplines, and it had become politicized. And right now, Caiaphas is the high priest. He's the high priest of this. And all the scribes and all the elders had gathered, and we'll talk about that a little bit more in just a minute. And Peter, the guy that cut the ear off, Peter, one of Jesus' best three friends, Peter, the one who just hours before this, he vowed with Jesus, he said, Jesus, I know you said we're all going to fall away, but not me, not me. I know these other guys, and you're probably right about them, but not me, Jesus. Even if it costs me my life, I'm not going anywhere. And, and in the garden, he seemed to put his money where his mouth was. He pulled out the sword. He was ready to fight. Now Jesus has been arrested. Matthew continues, and he tells us, and Peter was following him at a distance. So gone is some of that zeal. Gone is some of that bravado. Gone is some of that feeling. And now he's still following, but it's from a little bit further away. He was the guy that, that before declared, no matter what, Jesus, even if it costs me my life, I will follow you. And, and, and in the garden, he pulled out the sword, but now here. He's still following but it's just further away. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. So we've already introduced Caiaphas. He is the high priest that God originally established to be somebody who oversaw religious matters, who oversaw the spirituality of his people. His office has become politicized. And now we see that this whole council of people is gathered together. Now this council, it was called the Sanhedrin, and we see that other places in Scripture. It was called the Sanhedrin, and basically, you, if you could wrap your mind around this, the Sanhedrin was kind of the equivalent of the Supreme Court. There's some differences, but it was kind of the equivalent in our context to the Supreme Court. This is, this is the body that kind of had the final say on matters. They were, they were made up of 71 members, 71 members, and the high priest presided over the Sanhedrin. And these are all of the people that have gathered together under the, under the darkness of night at somebody's home. They've gathered together and they have an agenda. 
and their agenda is clear. They want to find people that are willing to lie. They want to find people that are willing to exaggerate. They want to find people who are willing to perjure themselves. They want to find false testimony against Jesus so that they can kill him. That's their desire. So if you find yourself in a situation where you've been accused of things you never did, if you find yourself in a situation where people have blown things that you have done way out of proportion, if you find yourself in a situation where people just lie about you, I want you to know that your Savior understands. He understands on a greater level than you can even fathom or you can even ever imagine. And what hurts is there are going to be times when you find yourself in that situation and there are people that you thought you could count on and all of a sudden they're going to believe it. Or you're going to find yourself in that situation and all of a sudden the people that are like, I am with you, you're my ride or die, no matter what, we're together through thick and thin. And you turn around and they're nowhere to be found. Your Savior understands. And I would encourage you, don't lose heart. Don't give up. Because even if no one else knows the truth, and even if no one else is able to see what is real, God's got you. And he knows. And he understands. They couldn't find people to say anything which they could legitimately charge Jesus with. So they had to lie. They had to make things up. All to get the outcome that they wanted, to get rid of Jesus in their minds. We're just going to kill him. We've reached that point. And so they said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. They found none. They found many false witnesses came forward and at last two came forward and said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And here's what's fascinating. The temple was the center of worship. And so for them to hear this message, for them to hear that, that Jesus said he will destroy the temple, that's, that's a terroristic threat in their minds. Jesus is going to destroy the temple and, and rebuild it? Never mind the fact that this is the reality of what Jesus would do. They missed it entirely. Because... Jesus didn't teach the way they thought he would teach. Because Jesus didn't act the way they thought he would act. Because Jesus couldn't be confined to the box that they wanted to fit him in, they missed entirely the fact that he was, in fact, God. That he was the promised Messiah. And for all of these experts who knew the Old Testament front and back, who could recite it to you, who spent their lives studying the prophecies, 
when the very fulfillment of the prophecy that they had spent their lives studying was before them, their response was not to fall to worship. Their response was to kill him. All because he wasn't the Messiah on their terms. This is a reminder to us that we cannot serve God on our terms. That God is not responsible and God is not dependent to look the way we want God to, work, God to look. God is not dependent and God is not responsible to act the way that we want God to act. We are not God. He is. And if we spend all of our time trying to determine the way that God has to look and the way that God has to act, we're going to miss when he does work and when he does act entirely, all because it's going to look differently than we thought it would. And the high priest stood up, verse 62 says, and Caiaphas said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? Caiaphas says, Jesus, respond to these allegations. But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus absolutely refused to answer the question. And so the high priest appealed to God. Little did he know that God was standing right in front of him. Caiaphas says, Jesus, you have to, it's, it's the equivalent in, in our society if, if you were to say, so help me God, or to swear to God, something along those lines. That's what Caiaphas is, is saying here when he, when he pressures Jesus to answer the question. And Jesus said to him, verse 64 says, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And don't miss this. Don't miss this. Jesus right here has just, in fact, confirmed that he is divinity. He has just confirmed right here that he, in fact, is God. You have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man, speaking about himself, seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, why this is so important is because there are some people who have an entire misunderstanding of the New Testament. And one of the claims that, that they like to make is that nowhere in Scripture did Jesus ever claim to be God, and nothing could be further from the truth. The very reason that Jesus was, was being put to death was because, in fact, he did claim to be God. And they couldn't handle that. We have an example right here, right here in, in Matthew 2664, where Jesus, in fact, claims that he is divinity. We see it elsewhere in, in Mark 14, 6. Mark 14, 62, that's just another example. There's a plethora of examples throughout Jesus' teaching where he claims to be God. But in this context, we see it clearly recorded for us here in Matthew chapter 26, as well as in Mark chapter 14. And this is just one example. And Jesus reveals that not only is he divine, but he will come again. And when he comes again, that time it will be as the conquering king. That time it will be what they originally thought they saw when they looked at all the prophecies of the Old Testament. They missed the part about a suffering servant. 
Jesus says, the next time I come, then I will come as a conquering king. And at this point, then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, he deserves death. Now, never mind the fact that the Sanhedrin was not able to exercise capital punishment. They were not technically able to kill anybody. But that wasn't going to stop them. They were powerful people. They had political allies, and they knew what they wanted. And here, seemingly, it was delivered to them. But the problem is, they missed it. This is what happens when we have all of the knowledge of God in our head. But it never makes its way into our heart. These men were brilliant scholars. They were informed. But they completely missed it. And understand, if Jesus didn't claim to be divine, then there is no case for the charge of blasphemy here. And then, they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? They start to beat Jesus. They punch him. They slap him. They begin to mock him. Their abuse and demeaning of Jesus. And now Peter, Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. And a servant girl came up to him and she said to Peter, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. But Peter denied it before them all saying, I do not know what you mean. We've gone from no matter what, Jesus. No matter what, I'm with you. Pulling out the sword. Following from a distance. sitting down. It wasn't guards. It wasn't members of the Sanhedrin. It wasn't the high priest. It's a servant girl. And she walks up to Peter and she says, wait a minute. You you were with Jesus. The one who swore, Jesus, no matter what, I'll be by your side. Denies even knowing him. Another servant girl saw him. Peter denies it. And when he went out to the entrance, another one, verses 71 and 72 tells us, 
Another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. So we have gone from denying it once to now another servant girl comes up to Peter and says, no, 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 you, you were with Jesus. You were with Jesus. And he, he now calls down an oath. And he says, I swear to you, I swear to you, I was not with him. I wasn't with Jesus. And after a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly, you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man, and immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out, and he wept bitterly. More people come up. I don't know him, and he begins to call down a, a curse upon himself. He begins, he begins to swear, I do not know him, I do not know him. He invites a curse upon himself if he's lying, and right then, rooster crows. The one who swore, Jesus, I will die. I will die for you. Has just lied three times about even knowing him. And he hears that rooster crow. And he's out. And he's broken. And he weeps bitterly as he flashes back to the conversation that was just had hours before. And he said, Jesus, I will die for you. And Jesus just laughs and says, Peter, before the rooster crows, it's going to be three times. And, and the servant girls were probably 12 to 14 years old, coming up to a grown man. So I, I've got to figure Jesus was being gracious when he's like, just mentions the rooster part and not, Peter, it's going to be so bad that you're going to be scared of a 12-year-old girl later tonight. And yet maybe you've been there. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you found yourself in a setting where all of a sudden it was a little bit uncomfortable for you because of the fact that you do love and follow Jesus. And, and maybe it was just easier for you just to kind of not mention that. And when people ask you about it, just kind of play it off a little bit. You think about all the people that claim to follow Jesus who are just crazy, and you're like, I don't really want to get involved in this conversation because I don't have a good answer for them, and it's just easier if we just kind of, yeah, so nah, not, you know, not really. 
Just kind of brush it off that way. Or maybe it isn't with your words. But the way you deny Christ is how you live. That every day you have an opportunity when you wake up to, to follow God and to honor God with the way that you conduct your life. And maybe the way that you deny Him isn't so much with the words that you speak. Everybody hears the words that you speak. It's just that your life, though you claim you love Jesus, your life looks like hell and everybody knows it. And yeah, you're quick to proclaim, I follow Jesus, but your life tells the real story. If that's true of you, either one of those categories, if that's true of you, then my hope and my prayer is that you'll hear the rooster crow. Because Peter leaves and he weeps bitterly, and you're like, well, thanks, Brian. Thanks for wanting that for my life. And I say, you're welcome. And here's why. Because guilt and shame, they're a prison. And they're a prison of our own making. And what happens in our life is when we go back and, and we have those regrets, sometimes we're, for whatever reason, we're just drawn to that regret over and over and over again. Maybe because of the feeling that it gives us, maybe because of our own insecurity, maybe because it's a distraction. I don't know the reason for you. They're, they're not that many different reasons, but they're, they're true for all of us, but the aspect of them are a little bit different. But we just hop right back into that place. And what happens is we start to live in a place of guilt and shame. And we start to imprison ourselves. And we build this prison around ourselves and we can't move. And what happens then is we're just stuck. And so we just continue to repeat the same behaviors and the same sins and the same decisions over and over and over again. And it stopped being fun and stopped being fulfilling a long time ago, but we're just stuck. Because guilt and shame aren't tools that God ever utilizes. Guilt and shame cause us to imprison ourselves. And I believe that when Peter heard the rooster and it crowed, God was happy that he left and that he wept bitterly. And here's why. Because conviction, conviction hurts. Conviction calls us to recognize that things are out of bounds in our life. But conviction doesn't imprison us. Conviction, sometimes it breaks us to our core, but conviction reminds us that this is not the end of Peter's story. And God loves us enough to allow us to experience pain. Guilt and shame, God has not called us to. Conviction hurts. But conviction causes us to move. And if you're a follower of Jesus, 
I hope your life looks like Jesus wants your life to look like. But if it doesn't, then I hope conviction comes into play. And I hope it tears you apart at the core. But that God will rebuild you and not leave you stuck. And if you're a follower of Jesus and you're like, God, I, I love you, I follow you, I just don't want anybody to know and I just can't really talk about it. I hope conviction visits you. Not so that you're like crazy. But you understand the gift of what it's like to talk about the hope that you have. That you understand the gift of what it's like to convey the message of love to other people. That you understand what it's like to have the opportunity to spread hope and joy and peace and love. Guilt and shame are not from God. And so if you find yourself there, it's time to recognize that conviction never leaves us stuck. It hurts, but it's always done to move us. And if you've given your life to Jesus, you don't have to stay stuck. You don't have to be imprisoned. Because he's already paid for your sin. And if you will follow after him. He will set you free. God, I pray for the person that is stuck. That is stuck in regret. That is stuck in a cycle. That they feel like they can't break out of. And I pray, God, that you would help them realize that guilt and shame are not from you. I pray, God, that they would experience conviction. And I pray that they would move. I pray for the person that's denied you, that's denied you with their words, and I pray, God, that they wouldn't be defeated, that they would confess that to you and they would move on. And God, that you would still use them to accomplish incredible things in the same way you still use Peter. Restore them. I pray for the person that's denied you with the way that they live. And I pray, God, that you would convict them. And God, that they would be broken. But that their brokenness would cause them to move. And that you would be glorified through what they do from this point forward. God, thanks for loving us. Even when we betray you. Even when we deny you. Even when we mess up. Even when we're stuck in the prisons of our own making. And thank you for coming to save us. So we could experience your freedom and salvation available through what you did for us on that cross, Jesus, and the fact you rose again. So help us live lives of appreciation that honor you, we ask in your name. Amen.